Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Oh, well, a um, couple things before we uh, get going. Uh, first, I am once again batching it. Uh, my wife, Megan, is in Dallas, Texas uh, this weekend until Wednesday. She's at a church service right now. She's got a fundraising dinner tonight, meeting with people for the next couple days. And um, don't get me wrong, I am glad to have a sugar mama. Uh, but here's what happened. As many of you know, I've told this story many times, she has two demon-possessed puppies. And typically they're well-behaved, but the one thing that they are terrified of are thunderstorms. So how do you think Friday night went for me? That's right. I got zero sleep Friday night. The little one kept trying to dig into my underarm for some reason, even though I had used deodorant, but still, I don't understand why anyone would prefer that. Um, and the older one just kept barking and whining and jumping up and down and all this other kind of stuff. And, and uh, my wife called me the next morning and said, how'd it go? I said, well, there was a thunderstorm last night. And she, there was this pause, and she said, are they still there? I said, well, I got one word for you, Craigslist. Um, <laughs> I think they put it together. I don't think it's two words. <laughs> Maybe it is. I'm tired. I haven't slept in 48 hours. Cut me some slack. Um, and then we kept losing power yesterday because of the uh, windstorm, second windstorm we've had in three weeks with like 40 to 60 mile per hour gusts. I don't know who's holding God's people hostage in this county, but let them free. Because <laughs> I'm tired of this. Oh, but anyway, so even though I haven't slept in uh, more than 15 minutes in 48 hours, uh, it's good to be here on Palm Sunday. As you know, we have adopted this thing called the Gospel Project, where we preach uh, not every verse of the Bible, but we hit kind of here and there as we ro run from Genesis to Revelation. And, and this morning, we, we, we don't do special services. This morning, we're in um, 1 Samuel 17. And I know that's strange for Palm Sunday, but let me just say a word about Palm Sunday. If you want to understand Palm Sunday, here's how you understand Palm Sunday. And some of you have heard me say this before, but it's important. According to Jewish legend, when Israel won its independence fighting the Greeks, who had been one of many nations that had subjugated Israel over the years, when the Maccabean family led a revolt and kicked the Greeks out of Israel, one of the ways they celebrated was by grabbing palm branches off the trees and waving at the, retreat, at the re, uh, retreating army, almost like, you know, some ding-dong would shake one of those big fingers, those foam fingers, at like a team at a football game or a basketball game, kind of like that. And it became, because of that, it became a symbol of kingship. 
And so when Jesus is coming into Israel, the reason they're laying down palm branches, they're saying, we want you to be our king. That's not the first time that had been said. If you go look at the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus actually retreats at one point because he says he knows the people want to go and make him king. And what that means is they want a revolution. They want an armed revolution. And that's not what Jesus wanted. Jesus wanted to go to the cross, fulfill his Father's will so that we could be forgiven for our sins. And so we need to remember that on Palm Sunday, the palm is a bit ironic because they were laying it down saying, well, we want you to be our king, but then only a few days later they were saying, if you're not going to lead an armed revolution, then we don't want you anymore. And they rejected him. We need to be careful about that, about making God into our own image and our Lord into what we want instead of what the Bible says he is. That's the message of Palm Sunday, to prepare you for Easter. Now, I also want to say, real quick, uh, I hope you're all praying for, one, everyone in the bulletin, because we've got a lot of people sick. I was told a lot of people this morning were sick. There's a lot of just nasty stuff going around, how much that has to do with the COVID lockdowns and our immunity systems just dropping to, you know, all like, I don't know, but a lot of people are sick. And prayers for Nashville, of course. Um, and the tragedy that happened there. All right, let's move on. Now, this is going to sound like a strange intro to David versus Goliath. And I can look, if you think what I'm about to preach is how you can slay your own giants, because the Lord is always with you if you'll just have courage, that ain't what I'm going to preach. I have heard that preached on TV and radio since I was yay big. That is not what this chapter is about. This is about something else. And it has to do with God and his honor and his glory and whether you love him enough to defend it and put it first. That's what it's about. I listen to a doctor occasionally on a podcast, and the doctor specializes in dealing with addicts, and he's been doing it since early 90s, I guess. And he went years ago before the Los Angeles County and the Los Angeles City Council, which is where I used to live. And he offered to help with the homeless problem there. He said, he went back, he did a lot of research of why there is suddenly a crisis in homelessness in New York and LA and San Francisco, etc. even now Columbus, really. And I'm not going to give you the whole story and everything. But they rejected it. And they rejected it for a reason. 
it was mainly political. And also, as always, whenever something is political, it had to do with money. But he's an interesting guy, and I listen to him because it helps me as a pastor whenever, you know, I have to do something. And I tell Dad this all the time. He doesn't like it, but ever since, especially COVID, but it was happening before that, you know, this is now my church office because 90% of you, if you have a problem, send me a Facebook message or a text or, or whatever, and, and that's how we deal. And I get a lot of calls and a lot of texts, so forth, about family crisis, family emergencies, personal problems. And I've had all of, I worked for a licensed professional counselor for three years, but I've had all of one graduate course on professional counseling. I'm not a licensed professional counselor. And I, if it's a serious problem, I try to send you to a licensed professional counselor. But I try to learn as much as I can. And what this doctor told me about dealing with the rise in addiction and the rise of homelessness and, and so forth is he said, in our culture, and there are many reasons for this, in our culture, too many roads lead to narcissism. Now, if you don't know what that means, psychology today defines narcissism as selfishness, showing a sense of entitlement, a lack of empathy, and a need for admiration as characterizing their personality type. That sound familiar? Entitlement, a desire, if not a need for admiration. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the culture we live in. But most of us don't see it because it is the culture. And we don't often see because we're so immersed in it. The late great author David Foster Wallace once said, told a story, and it's, it, he stole it from us. It's, it's an old story. He said there's an old fish swimming along a stream, and two young fish come along, and the old fish says, hey, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish look at each other and goes, what's water? Because it's just the air we breathe. And so we have a hard time noticing it, dissecting it, reflecting upon it, criticizing it. But because of the focus, constant focus on self, which has been magnified by social media, to be sure, I think this doctor is right in that in our culture, too many roads lead to narcissism. Now, what does that have to do with David and Goliath? Listen to me. And first, this is going to sound like another detour, another rabbit hole. And some of you are going to think, Matt really needs to get some sleep. And you would be correct. But, Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul writing about God says this, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom 
with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Now, why do I bring this up? I'll come back to it. When we get to 1 Samuel 17, we have David facing off against the giant Goliath. Now, let me take a look at this. I'm not going to read all of 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Most of you know the story, right? Who won? Who won? Yeah, okay, so you know. No spoil. You don't need to do spoiler alert. But here's what you need to know as we get into this about David. This is what happens when you take a text out of context. And I had one professor say all the time, a text out of context is a pretext for a proof text. You're just going to make it say what you want it to say. And you have to pay careful attention here to what the text is actually saying and why David did what he did. It has nothing to do with the fact that he's this little runt shepherd and he's taking on this giant somebody a foot taller than Shaq. That, has, that is not what the story is about. As you'll see, David had plenty of experience fighting off lions, bears, wolves by himself as a little kid. And if archaeologists who've been working with scientists are correct, Goliath, when the average height at that time was about 5'2", and Goliath is over 8 feet, it means he had the same kind of genetic mutation that Andre the Giant had, which means he moved slowly and wasn't going to live long. And so David looks at this guy and is like, lions are faster, bears are better fighters, wolves come in packs. I ain't afraid of this guy. It has nothing to do with David being so small and Goliath being so big. The only thing about Goliath being big is that none of them understood the science and they just looked at him and went, no thanks. All the Israeli soldiers were like, <laughs> that's the background. Let's get into the story. First Samuel 17. The Philistines, the Philistines were Israel's arch enemy. Now mounted their, mustered their army for battle and camped between Soko and Judah and Asbukah, and you don't need to know all that. Saul countered by gathering his Israelites' troop near the valley of Elah. I've been there. If you go to Israel, you can visit it. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Common military tactic continued all the way up through the Civil War. Then a Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. That number's a little debatable. We don't really understand. Hebrew numbers are a little hard for us to understand. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and as thick as a weaver's beam. You don't know what that is? It's just heavy. 
tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. And his armor bearer, or his assistant, walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy, notice this, I defy the armies of Israel today. Now, why that's important is before, every time we've seen the Old Testament, it is not the armies of Israel, it is the armies of God. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Jumping down to verse 16. For 40 days, every morning and every evening, the Philistine champion strutted. The Hebrew word literally says with extreme arrogance in front of the Israelite army. And so then we get the story that Jesse, David's dad, sent him to go bring some food to his brothers who were in the army. And so then if you jump down to verse 20. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him, his father. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelites and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of, the, of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him and shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king had offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He would give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Heck, I'd be tempted at that last one. David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Now notice this. This is the key. And I don't know of too many Hebrew scholars who disagree with this. David says, who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? I want you to think about that for a second. The reason David is willing to run down there and fight Goliath is not to get the king's daughter. At this time, he's probably 12 or 13 years old. It's not to pay taxes. He's a shepherd who works for his dad. He doesn't pay taxes. His dad does, so maybe he lobbied for that later, but he doesn't. What angers David is this. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And what he means by that is the only God. The living God was in contrast to the little idols you made for yourself and named yourself and worshipped yourself. Goliath's up there going, the armies of Saul, the armies of Israel. And David said, no, the armies of the living God. 
Who is this person to defy the living God? Now, you see, I remember I told you, I asked my, one of my Old Testament professors when I was in seminary, a brilliant man, still with us in his 90s. I asked Professor Willis, I said, how is it that David, who kills thousands and cheats on his wife, how is it that the Bible still describes him as a man after God's own heart? And this is why. David was one of the few kings of Israel who did not go worship false gods. Two, he would not allow any false gods. And three, he was offended when anyone questioned or defied the one true God. God is about his own honor and his own glory. And by the way, he's the only one who has the right to do that. Because he is the definition of perfection. And so when David hears this massive soldier taunt the armies of Yahweh, he gets angry. He says, who is this? Basically what he is saying is, who is this to question or mock the only God, the only true God, the creator of the universe, the creator of even him. Who is he? And then and only then does he march down and say, bring it on. And he drops him. And the Philistines flee. David was not trying to slay his giant. David was not trying to face his cowardice. David was not saying, if the Lord is with me, I should be brave. I get sick and tired of people talking about emotions when it comes to that. I always loved the quote from Customato, who was the original trainer of, of uh, Mike Tyson back before when Customato died, Mike Tyson went off the rails. And Customato used to tell Mike Tyson, the different, difference between a hero and a coward is not what they feel, it's what they do. He's right. David loved God. David would never worship another God. And David was offended when anyone else mocked the one true God. And he would not sit with it. I told you this a few weeks ago. It's a famous quote by John Calvin, who said he wouldn't trust a dog that wouldn't defend his own master. What about us? What do we do?
I got a lot of flack about 10 years ago when I began to study Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith, the logical defense of the Christian faith, the scientific defense of the Christian faith. A lot of people told me, you can't argue people into heaven. Worked with C.S. Lewis, he did pretty well. He got argued into it by his colleague, J.R.R. Tolkien. If you don't know who that is, he wrote these little series of books called The Lord of the Rings. And he was a Christian. And the reason I jumped into apologetics was because at the time, I was sick and tired of having 15, 16-year-olds hear me preach and then running into them in a coffee shop three years later, and they'd been in college for one year, and now they were atheists. I got sick of it. And they'd tell me what their professors were telling them and what their parents were paying a fortune for was for their kids to be taught how to defy the living God. And so, I began to try to train these young people in apologetics. And then I was told, young people don't want that. They want experience. They don't care about logic. They don't care about any of that. And then I went to an apologetic conference at a church, Zenos Church, in north of Columbus, and it was oversold. The place was packed. Every room that was a runover, it was packed. And the average age was about 20. I was sitting there thinking, huh, that's curious. And a lot of people get intimidated by apologetics. And I understand if you read some people like William Lane Craig, William Lane Craig is intimidating. There is no doubt about it. He has two masters, two PhDs, and he speaks 12 languages. And he's a devout Christian. And he debates atheists all over the world. And by the way, he's never lost a debate. Ever. Through an independent panel of a Christian, an agnostic, and an atheist, he always wins. Because the arguments are really not that hard, folks, if you'll take the time to learn them. They're not that difficult. One of the easiest is this. I've had people sit down with me over coffee or over text during, during the lockdowns. Well, I'm an atheist now. Okay. Where did the universe come from? Well, we don't know. Well, do you agree with the logic that something does not come from nothing? Yes. I said, I was like, you're not like hiking through Shawnee Forest and you sit down and you go, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. I will wait for a pizza and a Pepsi to just appear. Does not work. And this is nothing new. A guy named Thomas Aquinas argued this well over a thousand years ago. And he argued, he said you have to have what he called a primary mover, the first mover. 
And he argued before Einstein. In fact, another guy named Boetius argued before Einstein. That time, space, and matter had a beginning. We know this now. The Big Bang, I know some of you don't like to use that term because you connect it with Darwinism or whatever, but there's nothing wrong with the term. All it means is the universe had a beginning. Well, what started it? Logically, it has to be something outside of time, space, and matter. By definition, that is God. Now, is that that hard to memorize? It's one of the first things I ask. It's not the only thing I ask. This past week, when the tragedy in Nashville happened, you got angry, didn't you? You were sad, you were angered, with good right to be. Why? They weren't your kids. They weren't your friends, you didn't know them. Why are you angry? Why are you upset? I've told you before, I like to read obscure books when I have time. I don't like to read the stuff on the New York Times bestseller list. That stuff bores me. And I remember picking up a book a used, at a used bookstore, and I picked it up just because of the title. It was called, I think, if I remember correctly, Listening to Mozart After Midnight. I thought, that's interesting. I'll pick that up. I read it. And it turned out the guy was a Christian who wrote it. And one of the things he wrote, he said, when he came to faith, one of the things that made him doubt his doubt was watching, believe it or not, a documentary on monkeys. Now, I almost didn't finish the book because I will go ahead and tell you. I will share a bias with you. I hate monkeys. Now, my second eldest brother is sitting there in the back. He will tell you the story of when he had to yank a monkey off my head. That's a true story. I was a little kid. Our neighbors had a monkey along with all kinds of other exotic animals when we were living on Ecuador. It was... I don't know why they had it, but why they had all these exotic animals. I'd rather have the demon-possessed puppies than that monkey. That monkey jumped on my head and was trying to rip my eyes out and everything else, screeching and everything. They are vicious, vicious creatures. And to my brother Brian's, you know, to, I will give him credit, he ran out there and he grabbed it, and then it turned on him. And so then he did the only thing he could think of. He took it by its tail and went. <laughs> so ever since then, I've hated monkeys. With the exception of Clyde, from any which way you can, I hate monkeys and primates in general. But this writer in this book said he was watching this documentary on primates, and he noticed something. When you have this pack of primates together, one will jump over, the, usually the biggest one, and run over 
and take a piece of fruit from the smallest one and yank it away from him and go and eat it. And you know what the other members of the clan do? Nothing. They do nothing. They don't care. You want to know why? Because they are not made in the image and likeness of God. And because we are made in the image and likeness of God, when we see injustice, we get ticked off. We don't like it, whether it directly affects us or not. So when I talk to people, I talk to atheists or agnostics, I ask them, do you believe in justice? Of course I believe in justice. Where do you get that from? What do you care? It's not your pack. It's not your clan. Has to be something else there, bub. You see what I mean? The problem is that we live... The reason I believe this doctor is correct that too many roads in our culture lead to narcissism is we are more concerned about likes and how people see us and too focused on our own comfort and people admiring us and giving us accolades that we may or may not deserve than we are loving each other. And the reason we don't love each other is we don't love God first. When God and others come first, narcissism, the roads to narcissism get closed down. They're gone. And one of the ways you test for that is this. When you hear someone defy the living God, does it make you angry? Or does it just wash over you? Now, when you get angry, as the Apostle Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. In other words, don't be a jerk. You need to be gracious. I'm not telling you, understand one of the takeaways from this sermon is Pastor Matt is not telling you that the next time you see somebody like Bill Maher spout off about how wonderful atheism is that you don't pick up a rock. And I watch Bill Maher every week. I listen, I think, I reflect, I think about what would I talk to him about if I had 15 minutes with him. You have to gracefully engage the people. And you have to ask yourself every single day, where is God and others in your life? Where do they rank? And only you and God know that. Are you number one? Is it all about your selfishness and self-love? Or is it about God and others? And again, one of the tests of that is, <clears throat> do you get offended if God is questioned? You'd be absolutely amazed at what any one of you could do. I don't care your health, your age, your economic status, I don't care. What you can do if you love God so much that you cannot stand when he is questioned. 
And because of that, you will do extraordinary things because that should tell you you do love God more than anything else. As you, uh, many of you know, I've been studying for a Ph.D. for a couple years now. I've still got a couple years to go. Takes an average of five, six years to go Ph.D. these days. And so I was taught by an instructor years ago that if I wanted to stay focused, if I wanted to get things done, if I didn't want my mind to wander, that one of the things I need to do is I should study for 45 minutes, then take a 15-minute break and then go back to studying for 45 minutes. Go watch something, go listen to something, go take a walk, go get a snack, whatever. And so yesterday when my power was going in and out and I was studying, I do what every 50-year-old pastor does when they've got 15 minutes to kill. I was watching reruns of Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, you all do it. That show was on for like 15 years, for goodness sake. I always get bummed, especially if it's a murder mystery and they don't have the update that the guy's been caught. That always bums me out. But yesterday I was watching, and they had a story that I'd never heard before. It was about a young Czechoslovakian girl back in the early 1940s named Helen Kanka. And she lived a rough life. Hilan was the youngest of her father's children. Her mother died in childbirth. Her father blamed her, even as a young child. Physically abused her, emotionally abused her. And then he married a woman who would make a wicked stepmother from a Disney movie look like a princess. She had an awful life. And then, after all of that, the Nazis invaded. So what she would do was, she was in a small village, and they were surrounded by thick forests. And she would run off into the forest and try to spend as much time there as she could to get away from everything, to get away from her family, to get away from the Nazis. And she found a deep underground cave and she almost made like a second bedroom there she brought candles there she made a bed of straw and that's where she would go to spend any free time she had the only other outlet she had was on Sunday she would go to church her family didn't go to church but she wanted to go to church and she loved it And it took her a while to learn the gospel. It took her a while to learn a biblical worldview. But what attracted her first was that the people were so gracious and they treated her like a real family should. And so every moment she had, she was either at church or she was in the woods. And the priest taught her to love God and love others and to help others. And this was obedience to the living God. And one day she was in her cave and she heard just a huge crash. And she ran outside and she found that a plane had been shot down, an American plane had been shot down. With a number of airmen inside, six to eight, 
two were injured, the other two were fine. She tried to do in her best broken English, tell them, you need to leave Nazis, Nazis, Nazis. And she brought them to her little cave. And she hid them there for a year. She went through dumpsters to get them food and bandages. But then her stepmother began to question why she was gone so much, why she was in the woods so much. And, and rumors had circulated that American airmen could be in the area because that plane had gone down and they hadn't found any bodies. So she went to the priest and she took him aside and said, can I trust you? I have something to tell you. And whether it was the priest's intuition or the Holy Spirit or a combination of the both, the priest said, come back tomorrow. So she came back. He brought her into the confessional, and he opened a little panel, and it was a two-way radio to London. He led the underground fight with the Allies, America, England, etc., against the Nazis. And he helped sneak Jews and others out of Czechoslovakia. And a voice from London said, you can trust this priest. And so she sat down and she wrote out where her cave was, where he could find them. And it was good timing because as soon as she got home, her stepmother had the Nazis waiting to arrest her. And they put her in a concentration camp for two years where they did medical experiments on her. She got out. She married somebody from the Czech underground. Eventually, they moved to America, but she had no idea what happened to those servicemen. So she went on Unsolved Mysteries, and she pled her case. And I was sitting there waiting. It was past my 15 minutes. But I had to see if there was an update. The update was all of them survived, and all of them came to see her. This was a little girl who understood you love God, you love others, and God will do amazing things for you if you don't defy the living God. Amen? All righty, so just a couple things before we quit. One is I think you'll notice that our folks who went to Uganda are back. Uh, they had a safe trip. Sean's back there. Dad's there. Mom's resting. Um, and so Norman back here back. Kim are back. Everyone's back. That was a great trip. Um, Dad will be preaching next weekend on Easter, so you'll hear more from him probably then about that. The other thing is my Bible study uh, tomorrow night at 6.30. Other than that, guys, God bless you. God goes with you. I'm going to go home and try to take a nap. See ya. Christ Community Church located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.